This podcast is part of the Podbelly Network. Please visit podbelly.com to see a complete listing of all of our other shows. It's about to be a fun ride. Follow along, watch as we slide. Paranormal just hit the lights. Goosebumps all through the night. Mixing just a little bit of twain. That girl sure can't do a thing. Together, hillbillies go insane. Laugh so hard it'll hurt your brain. Podcast you won't ever change. These two here, they got the recipe. Sat on back and listen in to some of our darkest mysteries, eh? Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Stories. And now here's your host. Jerry and Tracy Pauly, and their dog Ninja. Hey guys, welcome to episode 14 of the Midweek Episodes. I'm Hi Jerry. guys. Oh. You talked right over top of me. I'm sorry, I did. That's okay, they know, they know who we are. <laughs> <laughs> so tonight, we've got a, uh, a little short story that's of local lore. It's uh, uh, just above Louisville in a place called Trimble County, if you're outside of the area. But it's a Kentucky story. I'm excited about doing that one. And our special guest tonight is Dana Holyfield. If uh, For you fans of cryptids, especially Bigfoot-type creatures, she has the is the expert these days as far as she's got a couple of books out. She's got some movies. She's got a documentary about the Honey Island Swamp Monster in Louisiana. And her uh, grandfather was the... Uh, I guess the first main sighting that he's the one famous for seeing it and she carries on his legacy and she tells tells us about the case itself what he saw mm-hmm. uh, a movie that he shot that they didn't find out about till after he already passed away oh, wow um, so really That's cool yeah really cool so let's jump into this one this is the lizard man of Trimble County now I love doing stories from Kentucky there's no secret about that now I've noticed as we do these things that there are some incredibly documented stories of all types of paranormal accounts here in the state of Kentucky. You've got the first person to ever be killed chasing a UFO, which we've already talked about. That happened here in Kentucky. The UFO case that was in Stanton that we talked about on the the Hillbilly Shorts on Patreon, it was one of the most uh, uh, documented abduction stories, and it literally is 30 minutes from where we live in Lexington. I know, isn't that crazy? And if you've watched Hellier, which I know you haven't, but uh, I've watched Hellier, and I know it's a big deal right now that a lot of people watch, and it's a lot of publicity, but they mentioned Somerset in there as being one of the most unique places for crystals and and, uh, just everything going on. And that place is, what, 40 minutes from here? Mm -hmm. Somerset, which we'll be going there next week. Oh, yeah, true story. But anyway, I mean, it's just amazing how much stuff is here, and yet here's another one. And that's not even talking about Waverly Hills and Bobby Mackey's, Mm -hmm. you know, being here as well. So just north of Louisville in Trimble County is a lizard man of Trimble County. That would make sense. So the first sighting was back in 1975. There was a farmer by the name of Carl Abbott. And he said he heard something making some grumbling and uh, some grunts and stuff like that out in one of his fields that he had. It's late one night. He goes out there and checks it out. He says he got a picture of it. I've not been able to find this picture, though. Okay. So, But, I'm, I mean, there might be one somewhere, but I, I couldn't find it. He said he also found some tracks. They were five-inch long um, 
tracks or the or the toes on it were five inch long, and it had claws on it, long claws on it. You could tell this by the the marks. So not too long after he sees this, there was a dog in the area that had been mutilated mutilated by something that had very sharp claws. Oh. So in July of this same year, Clarence Cable, he saw the creature at his junkyard. He was walking in between some rows of cars, and he said this huge lizard jumped out from the back of uh, one of the cars that were there. He said it stood... What stood out about it is the fact that it was walking on two legs. <laughs> I don't know. I just picture that in my mind. Like, hey, man, what's up? He said it hissed at him several times, and then it ran off. He said underneath its mouth, it was it was like an off-white color. It had really big eyes like a frog. Like bulging? I guess. Hmm. He said it had black and white stripes that went across its body. Clarence said that... He had moved a bunch of cars from that area, and his thought was that when they moved those cars, it somehow displaced this creature from where it was staying or hiding or something like that. So now it's disturbed and out and about where you can see it. Hmm. On July 27th, Clarence's brother Garrett also saw the lizard man. He said he was walking around some red cars, much the same that his brother had been. He noticed the head and shoulders of a large lizard that was behind a pile of hoods. He ran back to the office and he grabbed his brother. But when they went to get get back there, the creature was already gone. Never fear though, because the next day, he ran into a bigger version of the lizard man. So now they're thinking that there's at least two. He was in a junkyard looking for a stick to prop up a hood. He said he saw this incredibly large lizard. He estimated it to be 15 feet. Now, I don't know if he meant 15 feet tall or 15 feet from like like it had a long tail and he was counting that. But either way, that's huge. God, I hope it wasn't 15 feet tall. That's Godzilla. I was going to say, yeah, he'd be tripping. He said he threw a rock at it. It hissed at him and ran into the brush. So Clarence ran back to the house. He got his rifle. Him and his brother, they come back. They searched all through the brush, but they couldn't find it. In August, a search party was formed. No luck, though, on the lizard man. He never was seen again in Trumbull County. Clarence said that he thinks it looked like a monitor lizard, and he felt like that maybe a monitor had laid some eggs or something in some of those old cars back there. Maybe that's there was a group of them. Still doesn't explain why it's so big. What's a monitor lizard? You know, like a Komodo dragon and stuff oh. like that. It's a yeah. I've been sucking on some oil out of them old cars or something. <laughs> I think that would kill it. Oh. But mm. I don't know. It was just a strange story, but there was, you know, three different people that saw this thing. Supposedly. Yeah, that is, I would crap my britches if I seen something that huge. And you know, there's all these, there's all these people that talk about reptilians being aliens coming down. That yeah. They're saying that like a lot of the presidents and stuff are really reptilians that just take on human form. Oh, <gasps> Yeah, that's that's like big. That's uh, David Ick is a guy who uh, who came up with most of that stuff. So he's supposedly an expert. I need to get him on the show. Uh-huh. And I'm sure he'll talk to anybody. So uh-huh. anybody who'll listen, he'll talk to. So I could probably <laughs> get him. Well, I mean, if nothing else, if they were the lizards were friendly, they could be our bodyguards. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And like whip them with his tail or bite their heads off. <laughs> well. Let's go. Let's transition from lizard to uh, 
bipedal creatures such as the Honey Island Swamp Monster. Okay. So this is uh, Dana Holyfield. Hey guys, I've got a special guest for you tonight. We don't do a ton of cryptids on the show, as you know. Uh, we've got a few, but, and we really don't have a lot of uh, guests on that are cryptid-related. And this one, I kind of seeked out a little bit because I saw a story that I was unfamiliar with, the Honey Island Swamp Monster. And as I started digging into it to see if I wanted to do a show on it or not, as far as us telling telling the story... Uh, I ran across a, a young lady by the name of Dana Holyfield, and her grandfather was the one, Harlan Ford, who actually saw the first sighting, official sighting of the Honey Island Swamp Monster back in 1963 in Louisiana. And I thought, why would I want to tell a story if I can get an expert on the situation? Because Dana's actually put out uh, a bunch of of information a bunch of videos books she's uh directed uh some little movies and stuff about this and documentaries so she knows everything there is to tell i could not touch doing this story justice as composed to what she could do uh first of all dana welcome to the show thank you very much for having me on it's no problem at all we're glad to have you on now dana before we get into the honey island swamp monster you have done a little bit of everything. You're an author. You put out cookbooks. Uh, one of the cookbooks, i got to say it drew my attention, was Cajun Sexy Cooking. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about the, the, the philosophy of that cookbook? <laughs> well, it, it, it's basically what one day I decided to, because I have a lot of friends down here, girl, girls that are friends that hunt fish and and we also cook, and, and I asked them if they would want to pose for some pictures in the swamp with their bathing suits on and their shrimp boots and fish nets and all that stuff. And so um, they I had a lot come out of the woodwork who <laughs> wanted to be in the book. And so we um, went out and shot some pictures of them hunting and fishing and then cooking their catch, and, and that's the book Cajun Sexy Cooking, and the way that actually got started was I years ago I had left Louisiana and I went to California and was I had pursued modeling and, and did some of that myself and also worked with a lot of photographers, so I learned photography, you know, to sh you know working with models, so when I came back here and did my Swamp Cooking book, on the back cover, the publisher, the first publisher that published my book, put my picture standing in front of the, the this grill with the what we call drunken chicken, which is chickens on the beer can. Mm -hmm. This was back in 1998, and it was a a picture that you know I was posing, you know, with low cut blue jeans and a shirt tied up and showing my stomach. Well, when I went on a lot of radio shows to talk about the book, they always would talk about that picture on the back and they want to know are Cajun girls really you know sexy like that in the swamp and I'm like so that gave me the idea for the book I said well we could cook hunt fish and cook you know and look good doing it so, <laughs> so anyway that's how Cajun sexy cooking come about so that's when I so I'm just going to do a whole cookbook on that with other with other girls you know hunting and fishing and cooking their catch so now, like you said, we had I, a lot of fun, huh? Like I said, I know I know you've done. Uh, how many cookbooks do you have out, or have you put out? Uh, well, I had 
swamp cooking. The first one was swamp cooking with the river people. That was the very first cookbook that was published. And then I did a sequel called More Swamp Cooking. Then I revised it years later to do that. You know, I took back over the book and revised it with an updated version, which now it's called Swamp Cooking with storytelling and pictures. And then I had um, the Cajun Sexy Cook, and I did one called New Orleans Mardi Gras Recipes years ago. Uh, and I'm working on another one called Swamp Country Cooking right now. And, uh, yeah, so, and I also write, like, n- short novels. I, and my my true passions write movie scripts. Because <laughs> that's, that's why I originally went to Hollywood a long time ago was to pursue film writing. And then I ended up coming back home because I was homesick for Louisiana and my family and our food and everything <laughs> that we have down here. You, you know, I was reading, I saw a couple of the uh, the film scripts, and it seems like at least the ones that I saw, you kind of keep a lot of local feel to a lot of stuff. It looked like there was a lot of swamp yeah. related stuff to most of the stuff you do. Yeah, we have the perfect backdrop for thing. You know, a lot of my stories are set here in Louisiana because they always say write what you know. So, so I I tend to stick to what I know when I'm writing. And with a, I do put you know some of the my stuff I, of course is fictionalized. My short novellas and um, some other books I've written, and I've written children's books, but I, they all kind of have the Cajun theme to them. That's awesome. So let's get a little bit into the Honey Island Swamp Monster. Now, we, we mentioned that your grandfather was the first person to actually have a sighting. That was back in 1963. And I'm going to let you tell the story of, of what went on. But let me ask you this. What drove you to pick up the torch and start carrying on this legacy, his legacy, uh, we will say, about this? Because obviously, anytime you have a situation where you've got one person who sees something you know and they come out you've got some people that are right on the bandwagon of i knew there was something out there and then you've got your fair share of skeptics that criticize uh and i'm sure he was no different with that i mean just like the patterson gimlin film so many people you know cry that it was a hoax and some people say that's definitely you know it's a bigfoot so and i know your grandfather probably ran into the same thing what happened to get you to pick up this torch and start carrying on his legacy? Well, when I was away from Louisiana and, uh, you know, a few times over the years when I was living in L.A., I, you know, would tell some people about my experiences here. And then, you know, we'd get on the subject of the swamp monster. And, and there was just such a fascination with it. I didn't really realize how much people were still interested until... I, you know, I came back here and I started talking to some new eyewitnesses that um, over, you know, who would tell me, "Oh, I had an encounter," or, you know, or I would learn about it through the grapevine and go talk to them myself. And they were kind of reluctant to speak to me or even let, you know, let me interview them on camera because they didn't want to be, you know, people think they were crazy. But, but I, I just, um, just from just talking to different people to realize that you know, that my grandfather wasn't the only eyewitness. I mean, he was the first one to come forth and report it and pour plaster, I mean, pour the plaster tracks, you know, the tracks that he found out there. But as I, you know, growing up 
with it in our family, you know, part of our family history. I, I guess we, I kind of took it for granted that it was just part of our life. It was no big, you know, no nothing that special until I got older and realized that other people were very interested in the, you know, that there could be something out there. And, and, and when I realized there were people that were actually not out to make fun or call it a hoax, that there were, were people very interested to know what this was because they believed that, you know, what my grandfather had, you know, encountered, that they, they didn't think it was a hoax. And that, so that led me to, to do more investigation uh, on my own and, and going out there and trying to find more evidence and, you know, interviewing people. Like if I, I would just take my camera with me. And if I happened to be somewhere, like we'd go to somebody's houseboat out there and they were having a houseboat party and, and there was, say, 20 people on the houseboat, probably, like, two at least of them had had some kind of encounter that I, you know, would learn about through my brother or somebody would tell me about it, and then I'd, I'd go ask them, can I talk to you about what happened? And, and some of them would talk, some of them didn't want to be on camera, didn't want to talk about it, and just say, yeah, it happened, but I'm not going to let you interview me, you know. So, um, but it's just... I just felt like it was something that, you know, my, was very important to my grandfather that, and because some people had called it a hoax, I guess I wanted to prove that he wasn't, that it wasn't a hoax by finding more evidence because, you know, he spent the last part of his life really searching. He, you know, we didn't know about the 8 millimeter film until years later, but he obviously had came closer than what we thought when I, when I was making my documentary and my grandmother said, here's something that might interest you. You might want to take a look at this. And it had, it was in his blocks of wildlife photography because he used to take his camera. He took a eight millimeter with him out there every time he went after his initial encounter, just in case he would ever come across something. And, and so he happened to have the old projector and we set it up and watched it the way it unfolded on on there, and that's how I put it in the film where it was uncut, just like we saw it, um, where this thing looks like it walks on two legs across the swamp. Uh, and he was up in a tree blind when when he filmed it. He was up high, and so that that you know, I was we were all shocked, you know, like oh my, God, he actually did capture something on film and I asked her why do you think he didn't bring this evidence forth to the public you know this you know because the first time he did it with the tracks and then she said because of what happened that time where it just became like monster mania around everybody was coming out of the woodwork wanting to go in the swamp hunt down this thing and they would probably shoot at anything they saw and he was worried that people would get killed by accidentally shooting another hunter or shooting somebody by accident or just shooting this thing that he obviously became really interested in learning more about and maybe trying to get closer and seeing what this was. So let's let's do this. Let's take us back to nineteen sixty three and tell us how all of this unfolded. But before you do that, give us just a little bit of background on your grandpa. Well my grandfather was a uh, he worked for the FAA who's um, directed airplanes into landing, um, a, uh, air traffic controller. And he, that was 
I, I don't really know what years he did that, but when he retired, he also was in construct where he built houses and, you know, built and sold houses that he built. But he was a very avid outdoorsman where he would, every chance he got, would go into the swamp. And he was also a pilot, so he, would, he had a twin-engine airplane that he would fly over the swamp. And that's how they found the hunting territory that they wanted to go make build this camp out there by flying over the swamp. And so, at w- on one of those trips over there, he dropped. They decided they would drop out a bag of flour onto the sandbar so they could find it by boat when they went back to go in on foot. But there was a certain area of the swamp that had a magnetic field. He thought because the compass would spin around and around when they would fly over this area, and that's the area where they were going to go in and into the, he thought it would be prime hunting territory down there for some, for one thing, it was way away from all civilization, and you, you had to get go by boat, and then you had to get out, drag the boat up over this levee, and then they went in um, on foot from there. They had to walk a, a ways, and then that's when they first had their encounter. So he has the encounter, and then at what point, I know 1974 is when the thing kind of took off nationally. And yeah, he had found, in 63 was when they first saw this thing face-to-face, where they had they saw it and it ran off from them. He was with his co- a co-worker and hunting buddy, Billy Mills, and that they were dragging some equipment through this, through this trail, this clearing to where this they had built their camp, and that's when they come up on it. Um, and he said it was on all fours in the trail. And at first they thought it was a hog until it stood up when it got a little closer, turned around, and faced them, and then it ran off from that point. But it, but in 1974 was when they found the tracks in the area, in the same area where this thing had, you know, was first seen and. And then he decided at that point to pour the plaster tracks. And then he called a friend who worked for the Wildlife and Fisheries, who he wanted to know had he seen anything like that before. And then he didn't, you know, he had never seen tracks like that. And so they called a zoologist from LSU from what he, you know, said. And then also the Smith Washington Smithsonian Institute, I think he said even, he he wrote about it in a a letter that I found uh, we found in his belongings too that he wrote to a magazine um, I don't know if it was ever published but it was his own writing exactly what happened that I put in my books so people could you know because after people tell a story so many times it kind of changes it gets yeah. told different ways exaggerated when we found this letter I was like oh well here's exactly what happened you know and in his own words so i was glad to be able to to find that and and then print it in my book so people could know you know the year and the time the time of the the year it was and so yeah (laughs) i'm trying to find it in my book right now in case i want to i could read some of it to you yes Go ahead. I'm uh-huh. sorry. Yeah, I, f- I found it's. It was a letter he wrote to the Argazi magazine, and he talks about. He explains about you know the hunting trip in '63 and then in '74 
when they they found the tracks and there was a big hog that had the throat ripped out blood was splattered all over the place and and they that they found tracks around that area um where this hog it's like a territorial thing uh, that was had killed these hogs and and they had hogs up at, uh, that was further away from the water, but there was one in particular in the water laying there where they thought it was ducks flying and and because they were duck hunting, they got down and was parting the cattails, and that's when they saw the water rippling. And when they when it got closer, it was a, a one of those boars that had the throat ripped out, and it was still like it must have been a fresh kill, and it was kicking, and um, that was causing the water to ripple. And, you know, they knew that whatever did it, you know, was something big that had to have the power to take down a boar like that. Because these big Russian razorback boars get really big out here. And they're mean. They got the razor sharp tusk. And just... So you, uh, I've heard you give a description on what his description was of what this thing looked like. Uh, give me a description of that, and then tell me what the plaster casts look like of the feet. Okay, well, he the way he described it, he said this thing stood like you know he was he stood six four, and this thing was taller than he was, and he's because he said it looked him right in the eyes when it stood up. Um, he said it probably weighed around four hundred pounds or more. And it had long arms that hung down like, like I, I would say, probably, you know, kind of like an ape would. But, but this thing, he said it wasn't a monkey or ape. Or it had a face that looked too human. And it had like short, dingy, grayish hair all over um, the body. But the, around the face had this long, grayish hair that hung way down almost to the ground around the face. And then when it's when it stood up, it turned around and ran from them on two feet. Hmm. And the feet, then now the tracks that he found, he's a, he, he always said that he didn't see what made the tracks, but he was assuming that because they were in the same area, or what he called the watering hole, that, that that's, and that they had never seen anything like this before, that these were possibly belonged to whatever he and his friend Billy had seen in 63. So that's why he decided to pour cast. And they had like the three long toes and a fourth little dew claw on the, on the inside. And they they looked sort of wet, like it could, you know, would swim. But which I've heard other eyewitnesses say they've seen it swimming across the river. And um, so that would make sense living in a swamp. You know that it would have adapted to the swamp if if that's what if they are webbed. You were you were talking about how your grandfather said that it it looked you know had a lot of human aspects to it. I, I heard uh, I think one of the interviews you gave where he even made the comment that he didn't want to shoot it because it looked human enough where he just didn't know. Right, right. That he said it he. When he it looked at him, what startled him the most were its eyes. He said they were big amber-colored eyes that just looked right at him. And, and he said the face it kind of had a smoothish face with no hair really on the face, and and it just had a human-like face almost. But he said it wasn't human. Definitely wasn't human. It was n- nothing he had ever seen before. 
He said it resembled, if he had to compare it to an animal, it would have been the baboon, but, you know, or, you know, an A for baboon, but he said it wasn't that at all. But he, it, it really made, it made him, whatever this was, made him want to go back and try to find more about it, learn more about this thing. I remember, you know, as a child, him taking a goat, and he was going to tie the goat up as bait, you know, when someone had brought him this goat to, to go stake out, and, and the <laughs> kids were all, we were all playing with this goat, and he's like, he starts loading it up, and we're like, where are you taking the goat? And he said, I'm, I'm going to see if the swamp monster <laughs> is going to be bait. And we were horrified as kids. Oh, my God, it's ate our pet goat. <laughs> and so... So when he come back with the goat on the leash, you know, later on, he's like, I guess it's the, either the, th- the thing's too smart for us or it's a vegetarian. But, <laughs> but um, we were thrilled that the goat didn't get eaten by the swamp monster. <laughs> but, so, um, yeah. <laughs> so your grandfather continues. He gets these plaster casts in 1974. He spends the next six years of his life still trying to figure out about this thing and learn about it. Unfortunately, he passes away in 1980, and it was after that time you mentioned the um, the eight millimeter film or uh, Super Eight film. It was after that time his his passing when your grandmother gave you this film and you were able to see this. Uh, that's what you were alluding to earlier. Right on on this movie. What year was this film? Do you know? I, I don't know. We've tried to have someone analog you know look at it and see and they uh, from what i could heard from people that have looked at examined it said they would guess it was probably uh, i would think the let the mid 70s maybe to late 70s i guess or you know because he would have had to have done it after he poured the tracks to me it seems like that he would have, you know, started ta- he did start taking his camera after he saw this creature. So maybe it was after the after he saw it in '63. He started somewhere between after '63 and and until he died. But I don't really know. I just would think it's not before '63, so it would have had to have been sometime after. I don't really know the year, and no one's really told me exactly what year the, the film was what what i don't even i don't know if it was there's a date if there could have been a date on it but i don't really know i just know it was after um he saw it he started taking his camera with him every time he would go out there he had a whole box of films that were labeled like deer alligator one was labeled ducks you know and then this one was labeled honey island monster (laughs) my (laughs) grandma's like i don't know what's on this but you might want to look at it and so we were pretty stunned just to find that so from the criticism standpoint um let's cover some of that so uh, some of the ecologists that, that live in the area say that it would be almost impossible for an ape like creature to live uh, in the surroundings that are there, uh, of course, that's all speculation because there's no way to truly know something like that. And then on the film, there are some people that have said that, hey, they, they think the film could be a hoax because it looks like somebody just dressed up in some, you know, uh, hunting gear, not necessarily, 
you know, that are, are gear that hunters would use, not necessarily a monster. You've seen the film, you've researched all this stuff. What is your take on those two criticisms? Well, on someone dressing up, I mean, it, the film is so, like, he's sitting up in a tree blind and it's so far away, it's really hard to say as far as what, because the film's kind of grainy and it's old, but, and if you look at the shape of, someone pointed out that studied it, looked at the shape of the arms and the, the length of the arms and the shape of the neck and the head, the way it moves, the light that was reflecting on onto the, what it looked like fur, like hair, and it, to, the way it walked, to me, it didn't. It looked real to me when I first saw it. I'm like, you know, that looks real. But you know, I wasn't a, an expert, so of course, I've had people like cryptozoologists and people that I trusted to look at at it and give me their opinion. Of course, you're always going to have skeptics and people to say something's a hoax. But um, a lot of people think it's it's authentic and real. So I guess you're going to ha- always have someone that's going to say it's not, but I think it is, and knowing my grandfather, you know, knowing that he was in search of this thing for many, many years that, you know, and he would take his camera and his goat to stake out for bait, and, you know, he was very serious about finding this, and when he would do things like that, he didn't have an entourage with him, it was just him, his camera, and if he took the goat that time, he went by himself, you know, it's like he didn't have nobody, he was trying to impress her you know you know after he really got serious about it and started looking for more evidence last question i've got for you on this and it's a it's the logical question what do you think that it is well i would think i think that it's something that's just been out there that live that that swamp when people say oh we would have seen it if there's something like that. I hunt that swamp all the time, or I'm always in that swamp. I've never seen something like that. Well, actually, there's places in that swamp that man's never even touched foot. You know, they that people just can't even hardly get to. There's um, there's there's a you know places that something like that could hide, like inside of old cy- hollow cypress trees, or you know, there's just all kinds of and then if you're out there in the swamp, you know, most of the time, if if you're paying attention, you can hear something coming from miles away and smell stuff. And, you know, like if you're wearing, someone had made a comment about aftershave and mosquito spray, you know, these people <laughs> that's going out there hunting and they spray themselves down with off or whatever, and they go out there, an animal or whatever, a creature or whatever this thing is could probably smell you coming you know if he's paying attention uh, you know i mean at some at some points obviously he wasn't paying a lot of attention when he got seen by some a few people but you know there are other most of the time you could probably hear for a long ways in a you know and, tra- and sound travels on water you know a long ways on the river and but whatever this is, I think, because I've, there's been too many eyewitnesses that have had an, that I've met myself and and talked to that have sworn that, that they had the, an encounter and told me, you know, what had happened to where you could tell when somebody's telling the truth or just making. To me, it's you know, 
I think I could tell most of the time that when people's being truthful, and there's just been too many eyewitnesses to say it's not real, that there's something that it's not out there. Now, what it is, I don't really know, because I've never seen it with my own two eyes, which I hope one day I get to, but um, I just think it's probably something that's just lived and existed out there. It might even be like prehistoric type thing, you know, that's just always been there, Um uh, and exist and and have managed to survive because there's things out there you could eat. You could, there's plenty of food, plenty of vegetation to eat. A lot of things that something like that could live on and not have to ever be in an area where there's people if it didn't want to be. Now, th- this is might be completely off base, but it, it just dawned on me. So there's another Bigfoot creature, I believe, in, in uh, Louisiana, and I might have this wrong, but I, is it the Rugaroo? Is that the... The Rugaroo? Rugaroo. Yeah. Well, that's that's a, um, a like a folklore-type Cajun folklore, which, then again, some people swear have they've seen something like the Rugaroo, which is they claim it's like a half-man, half-dog-type almost like a werewolf, I guess you could say, um, where it would be half man, half dog. And and then some people call them shapeshifters where they change from, you know, human to animal. So, But that's more of like folktale, like stories. Like my grandmother had Cajun grandparents, and my grandmother used to tell me, the stories about the Rougarou when we were kids, they were, you know, like to scare you from going into the woods alone. Like, don't go out there. The Rougarou's <laughs> going to get you, you know. So. I just didn't know if there might be a connection. Maybe that was, you know, maybe somebody had well, seen something be. like, you know. So. Maybe. I mean, maybe what they saw is was, you know, when they described the Rougarou, they described it as monstrous also, where it stood up on two feet and runs off you know, into the woods or it comes at them and, you know, but they, from what I've heard, a lot of people that have talked about it, it's more like a, um, comparing it to a wolf man. Yeah. Now that you say that, I do remember it being more werewolf than Bigfoot Mm -hmm. type creature. The best folklore is, uh, (laughs) that that I've heard is the one that talks about the train wreck in the, in the earliest 20th, 20th century, that supposedly mm-hmm. there was like a circus on board or something, and chimpanzees escaped, interbred with the alligators, which would be physically <laughs> impossible. Yeah. And, and that's that's what the uh, Honey Island Swamp Monster is, but I, I think that's a tad well, bit off. Well, yeah, they they had said, I heard about the train wreck and that, you know, whatever it was was the missing link in a box, you know, that escaped out of a, a big crate, you know, and... And there's also across the river is the, the government test site, and they some people say there's no telling what they make out there that might have escaped, you know, because there's um, if you cross the Pearl River on the other sides, Mississippi, where Stennis has their they test rockets and all kinds of things over there. You can feel the ground shaking sometimes <laughs> from the rockets going off, but. Um, so, you know, some people have thought, well, maybe they created something and it's right there at the edge of the swamp and it got out and half man, half creature, you know, because they've 
they they're doing strange things in those labs. <laughs> you know, who knows what they might have made and it got out right there. So, so there's that theory too. Dana, it's been a pleasure having you on. I'm so glad you came on. Tell everybody how they can find everything Dana Holyfield, whether it be your books or movies or uh, documentaries or well, cookbooks. I have um, a couple websites. It's easy to look up. DanaHolyfield.com has all my books that I have um, and film, my documentary films on there. And then, of course, I have the HoneyIslandSwampMonster.com website. And um, I'm on Facebook. I have a Facebook page, the Honey Island Swamp Monster official page by Dana Holyfield. And I uh, have a Dana Holyfield author page, too. And we'll post all those on our uh, our Hillbilly Horror Stories page so people can... And, I, and they can also them. find my stuff on Amazon. I have all my books on Amazon. I'm going to be ordering some of those cookbooks. Trust me. <laughs> Well, I'm almost I've fin- I'm almost done with my the one I was doing uh, the swamp country cooking. I was just going to revise the swamp cooking, but I have so many new pictures and new stories, so I just decided to just do a whole new swamp cooking type book, but call it swamp country cooking. I, I like and, I like the fact uh, that it's it's not just a cookbook. It's it's a little bit of you stories. mixed in with it. So. <laughs> And I have a new novel that's called uh, Gator Dundee that's uh, <laughs> kind of like almost a romance novel, but a romantic comedy. It's kind of funny, but it's kind of based on stuff that actually happened. <laughs> so, a little bit of fiction and a little bit of reality. <laughs> so I just put that one on Amazon, too. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dana. It, it, like I said, it's really been fun. I've been looking forward to this one. Well, it's nice to meet you, and um, I'll share your link on my my uh, Facebook pages. Awesome. Thank you so much. All right. You have a good night. Take care. Dana was so much fun. And the fact that she put out cookbooks that have uh, like a little sass to them, because like I said, who, who would have thought of having a cookbook where you've got funny stories, you've got the, the actual recipes, and then you've got women scandally clad. That's <laughs> genius. So anyway, thank you guys. I hope you had fun with this episode and we'll see you tomorrow. See you guys.